0: Warning!
1: Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you.
2: Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary.
1: Hey folks, Rigor here. I just want to let you know that my co-hosts, our guests, and I had so much fun putting this episode together that we ended up talking for over three and a half hours. So, in order to prevent you from having to listen to a three and a half hour show, we're splitting it into two parts. So here is part one of our The East Meets the West Primer. Hi, this is Rigor, and you're listening to a very special episode of The East Meets the West with my co-host Patsy, the Angry Nerd. Uh, I'm so glad to be back here with you, ba- with you Pat.
3: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm glad to be back too. Uh, we got a lot of uh, good stuff to talk about, and uh, uh, and yeah, and this is. Uh, I think this is going to be a really good episode, as always.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and this one will be particularly fun. Um, so, folks, this episode is not going to be our usual one in which we sort of take a deep dive into first, a you know, a Shaw Brothers film and then a Spaghetti Western. Um, this episode is what we call a, a primer. Now, I'm going to ask you guys, first of all, the pronunciation. It's spelt P-R-I-M-E-R. And when you look at that word, it's pronounced primer. And when I looked it up, it said primer is the first coat of paint. A primer, spelt the same way, is like a, a kid's textbook. So... Uh, what do you guys think? Because I've heard it pronounced both ways. Oh, I would say Primer.
4: Yeah, I, I think it, it, it'll depend if you're watching a British TV show or an American TV show. Because as I've <laughs> discovered, they, they pronounce things very differently over there as I binge on Avengers and The Saint and all those wonderful programs of the 60s.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, The Prisoner.
5: All yeah, the, yeah, all I, the, I, uh all the advertisements they show in between the programs.
4: Yes, al- aluminum cans, <laughs> I believe. Yeah. See, that's not even fair.
3: That's just like adding extra letters. Yeah. It's like that's not even a change in pronunciation.
4: Uh, it's it's a total.
3: Hey, would you like some cinnamon rolls?
4: Yeah, it's a it's a controversy, you know.
1: That's a controversy, sir. <laughs> yes. You're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've heard it both ways. I'm going to say Primer, but if anyone wants to call it Primer, it's fine. It's basically what we're doing is we're uh, doing this episode for new listeners as well as helping helping current listeners to sort of bone up on their Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Western movies uh, to maybe clarify things that maybe weren't clear before. So, we're going to attempt to discuss, you know, actors and directors and writers. And, you know, pretty much we're going to try to keep it to the stuff that we've only talked about on the show so far. But there will be mention of things beyond that. And so, don't worry about it. We're going to definitely try not to make spoilers of those things. Um, The big thing is we're dealing mainly with foreign films. And, you know, while the Spaghetti Westerns had a huge American influence... Um, and they had a lot of American actors and crew. Uh, a lot of them were targeted to American audiences. We still, being in the U.S., had a connection with them because, of obviously, our country started from Europe. We have roots there. But with the Shaw Brothers films, it's a little different because, first of all, there are thousands of martial arts or kung fu films out there. Many of them produced between the 60s and the 80s, but... Um, Out of all of that, at least on this show, we chose to focus on the production studio called the Shaw Brothers, which, not only because they put out amazing comedy and drama and horror, but they put out the best of the best in kung fu films from the Asian market, at least from that time period. So, one of the things we've run into is that there are cultural differences, obviously, as well as the names, which we've had a hard time pronouncing, and... You know, not even just pronouncing the names, but sometimes I felt like when I would read a synopsis for a film, I'm totally confusing the audience with all the Chinese names in it, even if it's just the character names. So today we're going to try to just give the audience a little backstory on the Shaw Brothers studio, as well as the Spaghetti Westerns, and also attempt to clarify some of the things that we've been talking about thus far. So to that end, um, Patsy and I have two guests on the show today who are... Uh, More than happy to share their knowledge and expertise about all things Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Western. Now, with us today is, first of all, Seven Hooks, who was a DJ, producer, and kung fu movie aficionado ever since his grandfather took him to see a double bill of Dragon Princess and Macho Man in the early 80s. And yes, there is actually a kung fu film called Macho Man, and I'm going to post those pictures that he sent me uh, and the one uh, sheet in the show notes just to prove that sort of thing, and his love uh, turned into outright obsession, coming of age during the second wave of the kung fu movie fandom in America, and being fortunate enough to live in close proximity to New York City, and thus privy to WNEW Channel 5's infamous Saturday afternoon broadcasts of the Shaw Brothers Classics, he pleads guilty to being a prime source of some of these uh, le- less legitimate versions. ...of some of those Shaw classics as they made their way to the DVD market in the early aughts. And, you know, he's an unapologetic lover and defender of the English dubs. Shout out to Ted Thomas. Uh, Seven Hooks has grown to embrace the entire Shaw catalog, including their horror, sexploitation, true crime anthologies, and yes, even Wong Jing's early gambling flicks. So, from an undisclosed undisclosed location, alongside a complete run of Southern Screen magazines, Seven Hooks is ready to talk Shaws. Welcome to the show, Seven Hooks. Many thanks. Awesome, awesome. So glad to have you. And also joining Patsy and myself and Seven Hooks is John Grace, who has contributed to the fanzines called Oriental Cinema, Asian Cult Cinema, Wang's Chop, Cashier du cinemat and exploitation retrospect for over 30 years. He's appeared on podcasts since 2011, spent most of the decade co hosting the Midnight Movie Cowboys, which you can find at midnightmoviecowboys.com, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. He, you know, this guy. He's to blame for retitling Crippled Avengers as The Return of the Five Venoms, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so welcome to the show, John. And yes, I blame you for the confusion about the Venom oh, yes, films.
4: It's an honor to be here.
1: Awesome, awesome. And actually, um, I had mentioned, I had messaged Patsy this morning that the version of Crippled Avengers that we watched on Prime, or at least the one that I watched, was called The Return of the Deadly Venoms. How did that take hold, John, and, and become canon?
4: Um... That's pretty funny. It's a it's a uh a case where a pirated release ended up becoming the regular title, uh, which apparently has happened a few times in this genre. But um in the late nineties, a friend of mine, uh Garanagoshin acquired some thirty-five millimeters of some Shaw Brothers films and they he got one of Mortal Kombat, which was the english print or american print of return of the five venoms or excuse me crippled avengers as we call it uh, back then when you uh <laughs> were soliciting to video stores and retailers it wasn't done on the internet and it was done by catalogs and flyers and if anybody worked in a video store they might have memories of this and they were going to retitle mortal kombat because they could not call it mortal kombat because the video game and the movie had that title even though slightly misspelled. They couldn't call it that, so they were going to call it <laughs> Five Venoms Two, or Five Deadly Venoms Two. And I said, uh, and I told Garrow, I said, don't call it that. Call it Return of the Five Deadly Venoms because that's a real, you know, a more exciting title than Five Venoms Two. That's just kind of dull. And also, you may not get solicitations if that video store or retailer already has the boot, the Master Arts bootleg of Five Venoms on the shelf. So it was a pure. Right catalog technical marketing retitle. And I said, it won't matter when people watch the movie, they won't care that it's related to, it's not related to the five deadly Venoms. It is simply uh, the same actors and director. And it's such a exciting and superior film that I don't think they're going to care about the retitle. Well, they released it like that. And I wrote the box copy for the (laughs) crash cinema release. I actually wrote the back of it with the kind of exploitation, movie language and uh you know sell the sizzle not the steak is the way you write that stuff right right so um eventually they had to quit selling it because the Shaw's started sending cease and desist letters to companies that were bootlegging their films and um Dragon <laughs> Dynasty which was a offshoot of the Weinstein company acquired the rights to all the Shaw film or the Shaw films they wanted to release and they put out a DVD of Crippled Avengers or Mortal Kombat and uh, decided to use the title I coined for the uh, for the Crash Cinema release, which I thought was really funny because the movie had become better known under that title <laughs> because the Crash Cinema DVD, I think, sold 75,000 copies.
1: That's hilarious,
4: including a VHS release. So that replaced the title. And I guess on Amazon Prime, they they carried it under that title as well. So I thought it was really funny. It's like, oh, I get no credit for retitling this movie total <laughs> ghost operation, I guess, or whatever.
1: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And when was that about? What year?
4: Uh, when the Crash Cinema release occurred. Yeah. I think it was 1998, because I remember writing up the box copy and faxing it to them or mailing it to them. Yeah. You know, back then, that's what we did. I didn't have email or a computer, so ironically i was working as a salesman <laughs> at comp usa so but i didn't own a home computer so i uh just i think i sent it to him and uh the release probably came out in either 98 or 99 yeah that that sounds
5: about right because at the time i was living in the bay area and i remember the first time just kind of happening upon the the dvd in a virgin Mega Store. i was like what the hell is this <laughs> you know Little did I know, I think I even knew you back then, yeah, but I, little did I know you had anything to do with it at the time, but yeah. yeah,
1: it was a Smart move. That's hilarious. That's so funny. And yeah, that was like sort of right around the times of the beginning of the internet, so you weren't able to look up such things as like, who were the Venom Mob, and like to know that it wasn't a sequel, you know what right. I
4: mean? And and also the whole Venom Mob thing, that was it was totally like a fanzine and rap music mythology at the time because the the classic kung fu movie cinema thing was not really thriving on the internet at the time because i remember looking at alt asian movies and the usenet groups and it's just everybody just wanted to talk about jackie chan and john woo and chewy hark and you know oh these 90s films are so good and most were actually pretty terrible and uh, um they they didn't want to talk about the classic stuff oh forget this old kung fu Garbage. You know that was a real dismissive attitude. So it was sort of a growing, organic thing. They kind of, they kind of regrew the fandom again. And I think streaming really helped with that, and the airing of these films on that uh, Robert Rodriguez cable channel. What was it, El Rey?
1: Oh yeah, El Rey. Yeah.
4: I think that that really grew a fandom again. Like I had people, my coworkers would come up and ask me, "What's this Clan of the White Lotus movie?" You know, it's just like it was weird. It was like Black Belt Theater all over again. <laughs>
1: That's funny. That's funny. I mean, I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s with, you know, the the late night kung fu shows. And even in Boston, we had um, noontime kung fu shows after uh, our show Creature Double Feature ended. But, um, you know, in the 90s, I totally remember like going, like taking the train into Boston and going to these niche stores that sold VHS copies of at the time. It was simply just Hong Kong cinema. Like we weren't focused on the Shaw Brothers as we are on this show. And, um, you know, like you said, you know, Jackie Chan was the big thing. So you had stuff with him and Sammo Hung and Yun Biao. And it was it was, you know, Wheels on Meals and all these just crazy movies that you could get on VHS. And I'm sure they were all. Yeah, they
4: all were. Nobody had um, legit rights to most of those films. Like the handling of the video rights of these films in America was always an atrocity. And video pirates took advantage of that because. Japan would release English dub versions of films like wheels on meals. And um, England was releasing a lot of this stuff legit. And it would just get bootlegged over here like crazy because the companies over here, it was kind of like, it was all about Van Damme and Seagal. And eventually if it was Jackie Chan who got uh, very popular over here, they just wanted Jackie Chan movies. They didn't want anything else or Sammo Hung because of martial law, the TV series, then, that then they okay they were good with Sammo Hung movies but forget uh films with yin Bu
1: or or some of the other great actors from uh, the Golden Harvest era right right and, and you know John one of the things that you and I talked about off mic was um you wrote for Asian Cult Cinema which I mentioned in your intro and I used to collect that magazine. In fact, I think I still have plenty of them in my uh, in my storage somewhere. Um, so before we get into things, you had mentioned to me off mic that people still ask you about the Aces Go Places article. So can you tell us about that? Because, you know, I used to collect that magazine again in the 90s at the height of my interest in Asian cult cinema. Right. Uh, well,
4: I got the first issue of it was called Asian Trash Cinema. And it was a full issue of about several hundred or a hundred reviews by Tom Weiser, who was also the editor and publisher. And he was also running Video Search of Miami, uh, which was a video piracy company.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember them. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And he had all these reviews and uh, it was kind of clear. I didn't know for sure at the time, but it seemed like he hadn't watched most of the films and you had these reviews and star ratings. And I sent in a letter of corrections to the editor, <laughs> Craig Ledbetter and Craig uh, asked me, Hey, do you want to contribute to the fanzine? Because you seem to know a lot about Hong Kong cinema. And uh, so I started writing articles. I wrote a review, like got to 2 two, And I wrote a review of like burning ambition, which is a really cool Frankie Chan action film. Oh yeah. And, uh, and then I wrote this big exhaustive article on the aces go places series, uh, using the information i could find at the time in libraries which meant the variety movie review catalogs and a few other sources right right and uh wrote this exhaustive article and apparently was the first informative article about that series in the english language and was people would still consult it and everything and i would it would be mentioned to me years later on, on the internet they'll say are you the same john grace that used to write for asian cult cinema i, I don't remember when <laughs> uh but eventually they didn't want my articles anymore because I was writing for a fanzine that was very critical of Tom Weiser's uh review style, which meant making up films that didn't exist, like Once a Thief Two. And um <laughs> the so uh I I was not asked to contribute anymore, which is fine. I started writing for Oriental cinema because uh, Damon Foster had been a, a longtime friend of mine and uh I was writing for other zines and would write about Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer movies and other things that interest me at the time. And I write for Exploitation Retrospect. I write about Burt Lancaster movies that he was doing in the seventies when he was kind of desperate. So <laughs> I I, I kind of <laughs> crossed over to different genres, but yeah, Asian trash cinema or Asian cult cinema, I don't think was ever a very good fanzine to begin with. You can leave your copies in storage and eBay them eventually because <laughs> they're loaded with <laughs> Errors and mistakes, and written by people
1: with a lot of the wrong motives for contributing to a zine like that. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. You know, and and, and not a spaghetti western, but um, you know, the gunfight at the OK Corral is one of my favorite Burt Lancaster movies. Mm-hmm. But I really, I like, I love the movie the swimmer yeah that's a that's a really good film it's fantastic if people haven't seen that you got to check it out
4: unfortunately i didn't review it on uh, extra exploitation retrospect i would have liked to have done it. instead i did like one of those shaka zulu movies and that he yeah he's in and <laughs> some other some italian artsy piece of trash he did with visconti i, I can't remember what it was
1: titled <laughs> That's awesome, that's awesome. So, on this episode, uh, first we're going to talk about the Shaw Brothers and their films, and then we're going to, the second half, we're going to get into Spaghetti Westerns, and then after that, uh, we're going to revisit four films from the first two episodes, because obviously my co-host, Patsy, wasn't here for the first two episodes, and I, Pat, I'm dying to get your take on those movies. So, uh, is everybody ready to dive into all yes, this? Yeah, always ready. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to start with a brief history of the Shaw Brothers and um I'm going to read this, you know, my notes and and basically explain my v- vision or my version of the history of the Shaw Brothers and then you guys can fill in the blanks and correct me if I'm right or wrong. Is that okay? okay. Sure. All right, cool. All right, so from my research uh I've gathered that the Shaw Brothers is a production company from Hong Kong that started in the 1920s. They've made over 900 films, most notably of which are amazing epic martial arts films mainly produced from the 60s to the 80s and like they feature themes like honor, loyalty and re- revenge. And the Shaw Brothers company started in the 1920s and overall we had Run Jay, Run Day and Run May Shaw who moved to Hong Kong in the 1920s to form an all new organization and they were which was headed by their fourth brother named Run Run. Now, at the time, and this was the same for over here, you guys have heard, and it's funny because I was just re-listening to the first two episodes of the show, you guys have heard of movie theater chains like, for example, the Paramount? Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. So over here, same as over there, movie studios owned movie theater chains back in the day, back in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s. And the Shaw brothers did that. And they had, you know, movies that you could create And then you were guaranteed audience because you owned these movie theaters. So you'd put your films on these screens. And um, they churned out tons of movies. But it wasn't until uh, the film called King Boxer, which was a huge hit over here in 1972. And that sort of credited with starting the martial arts craze of the 70s. You know, it had this simple plot. It was... One of the hallmarks of the genre, including uh, some of the movies we're going to talk about today, which includes a diabolically sadistic villain and a hero who wants to seek revenge, along with help from a wise martial arts master. So that was sort of the framework that they they based things out of. But the Shaw Brothers studio was huge. I mean, they had a place called Movie Town, which had over 1,300 permanent employees, and their worldwide success was simply undeniable that, you know, their films... It, it, it blended larger-than-life characters with with fast-paced action and uh, creative practical effects because we didn't have CGI back then. And, you know, while in the 70s and 80s, the ones we're talking about are essentially kung fu movies, there's also a good helping of comedy and even sometimes romance, although uh, Patsy and I haven't encountered a huge amount of that yet, <laughs> but a lot of that was thrown into their films. So, you know, one of the most prolific and talented directors that we've talked about that has worked for the Shaws was Chang Che. And he directed over 94 films for the Shaws. He wrote about 88 of those. You know, this guy is known as the godfather of Hong Kong cinema. He was heavily influenced by people like Akira Kurosawa, Sergio Leone, Sam Peckinpah, Hideo Gosha. And Che brought elements from those directors' movies into his own work, and he sort of revolutionized Hong Kong filmmaking. And His swordplay films of the 60s, including, you know, The uh, the One-Armed Swordsman, they were filled with bloody scenes of the hero cutting his way through a room full of opponents. And at the time, they were considered by Westerners to be violent trash, but now they're looked upon as masterpieces of the genre. And, you know, in the early 70s, he began making kung fu films, um, including The Five and Masters, and then in the later 70s, The Five Venoms, and... Um, he would make like four or five movies in a single year. And, you know, his earlier Kung Fu movies were done in collaboration with this choreographer named Lao Kar Lung, who Chang worked with along with choreographer Tong Gai on earlier films. And with with Lao on the set of Disciples of Shaolin, Chang Chei sort of started a troupe of actors. And the guys he pulled together were the guys that we've been talking about on the show. They're Sun Chen, Chang Shang, Philip Kwok, Lo Meng, Lu Feng, Wei Pai... ...and Yu Tai Ping, and they would all become known as the Venoms, or the Venom Mob, as they are, or the Five Weapons Guy, as they're known in Taiwan. And they were actors and choreographers in his films. So his films from this period that we've been talking about, including The Five Deadly Venoms, The Kid with the Golden Arm, The Crippled Avengers, they featured a heavy influence from the wuxia movie genre... And they're considered some of his most popular films in the West, not counting 82's Five Elements Ninja, which is also known as the Chinese Super Ninjas. So, first of all, do you guys do you want to correct me on what I've said or add to that? Well, I just think it's uh,
3: just one one thing real quick before uh, you guys go. I just think it's funny how you know you mentioned that they talked about uh, Westerners being you know appalled at these movies being you know uh, just bloodbaths but you know you know spaghetti westerns or just american westerns where a guy goes in and you know just annihilates an entire town you know that's totally cool but you know (laughs) as long as they do it with a gun and not a sword you know that's the american way
4: (laughs) yeah the um i'll I'll say that um the whole idea of the bloodbath thing was inspired by japanese chamber films or samurai movies and uh if you look at so, a lot of the international press and reviews of say Wang Yu films or Low Wei's movies for Golden Harvest, uh the I, the comparison was always Peck and Paw. It it's the Peck and Paw of Hong Kong. Lo Wei is the new Peck and Paw or Chang Che is the new Peck and Paw or um right. Ching Chang Ho, the director of um I think it was Ching who who directed Five Fingers of Death. I think it was Ching Chang-ho. Yeah. He uh the new Peck and Pa. Yeah, like everybody was. is compared to Peck and Paw and like, that was the new way to go, this kind of, you know, while the Vietnam War is being raged, we get this blood splatter cinema created by Peckinpah. It was like, and I don't think they were actually inspired <laughs> by American films at all. It was the Japanese samurai films, which were not widely seen, but were had a following and were somewhat popular in the cities where they had art theaters or you know, Japantown cinemas like in LA's Little Tokyo. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah, Five absolutely. Fingers of Death, it's funny, that was a hit all around the world. It was almost like the world was waiting for this type of cinema, but it's not really the first real movie of the genre. Uh, the, the first one is actually Jimmy Wang Yu's The Chinese Boxer. And uh, although keep in mind that in Hong Kong, they had been making Huang Fei Hung movies, and uh, from what I understand, even Feng Sei Yu movies like as early as the 40s with, um, you know, decent, like serviceable plots or kind of like Westerns. They would do the fighting. The fighting wasn't really brutal or violent. It was hungar, kung fu uh, done, very stagey. But they would do a lot of things we would now accept as tropes of the genre, like using furniture for weapons or even comedy kung fu. But uh, Wang Yu made the Chinese boxer, which was like the first damn these Japanese bullying karate schools and uh, i'm going to use chinese kung fu and you know kill everybody within a five mile radius of my village and that that really blew up the genre and you could tell that's where the bruce lee movies take a lot from which wang yu had accused bruce lee of doing and uh king boxer (laughs) or five fingers of death was it was made after wang yu left the studio and there was an ugly lawsuit between the shaws and wang yu and uh it was almost like a, it would, okay, we can still make Wang Yu movies, even though he doesn't work for us anymore, but we're going to have Low Lee's the new Wang Yu, so we're going to have him play <laughs> the angry Chinese boxer. And uh, But it was a hit, like, in Italy. That's why you have Stranger in the Gunfighter, which we'll talk about later. And uh, it was a huge hit, like, all around the world. And funny thing was, I don't think the Shahs saw much of that money because I think they just sold the film to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers gave it the worldwide distribution.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So do any of you guys want to define wuxia, which is a term I used uh, in my description? Um,
5: yeah, I mean, it's, I've heard it, again, we're going back to the, to the whole
1: pron- pronunciation
5: thing, and I claim to be no expert whatsoever, um, full disclosure. Uh, in fact, to that end, I, I think growing up, I, I, you know, you just kind of phonetically spell these words and names out in your head when you're reading this stuff. And then maybe you, you find somebody that was like a Hong Kong expat and they tell you, oh no, in Cantonese, that's Lao Carlo.
1: And the whole time I've been calling it Lu Chan Lang. <laughs> oh. Interesting. It's interesting. And what's the definition?
5: Um, in terms of, oh, a wuxia? Oh yeah, yeah see, you said wuxia it some other way. Thing. Like I, in my head, it's wuxia. I said wuxia, how it's yeah, spelled. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, tomato, tomato. Um, my, you know, my definition, I just, uh, you know, it's a genre that's uh it seems to be more sword play based. And in you know, I could be wrong about this, John. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kinda separate
4: Kung Fu and Wuxia as like sort between sword play and hand to hand fighting. I, I do the same in Hong Kong, I think they call Kung Fu films are referred to as boxing films. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> and, oh, okay. and the wuxia are the sword films. Now the what the Venoms made, um I guess they're still considered boxing dramas or boxing films, but they have a lot of Gothic and wu elements and a lot of mystery. And and a lot of that comes from the writer, Ni Kuang, who was a big pulp writer in addition to being a very prolific screenwriter, but he created sort of a Hong Kong version of Doc Savage in like the, the 1960s called wisely. And they've made a couple of movies with wisely character. And um, he's also (laughs) created some other interesting pulp characters uh, but, and his work has never been translated over here, except for these Kung Fu films, which he, he wrote quite a few of them.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've also heard of it as, you know, um, not even just swordplay, but they're just adventures of martial artists in ancient China. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the, it could be opera, it could be film, television, you know, all different forms. They're still making them today.
4: Yeah, the king of Wuja novels was Jin Yong, or he's also called Louis Chu or something. Yeah, so, L- L- Louis Cha, I think, Louis yeah. Cha, yeah, 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 and
5: then and then Gu Long would be a close second, I would say.
4: Right, right, and he uh, he wrote a lot of pulp novels about the brave archer and the uh, demigods and demi uh, demi devils, something like that. Crazy titles, and um, he created a lot of these these characters. Uh, The Avenging Eagle, a bunch of classic Shaw Brothers films are based on his work. And um, he was, uh, he's finally getting after his death, of course, he's finally getting his stuff translated in English and sold over here. I think they're called Hero Reborn or something like that. They've given them uh, some some solid translations and a a respectable publisher has has put them out. But uh, he's responsible for a lot of the Woojah stories you see filmed by the Shaw's and um, maybe some Indies in the Mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. But when you name Wuja films, I immediately just think of Chu Yan's movies, yep. which are very pretty, colorful. They have swordplay, but action doesn't really seem to be the point. Uh, they have crazy stories, they have weird gimmicks and weird villains, and you know what we would probably call comic book or pulpy elements in them. But and they're they're fun to watch, and I like I like a few of them, but um, but they're very different from what Chang Cheh and Liu Jialiang and uh, Sun Chung would make. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that that, that that, you know, I
5: think, John, I think we spoke about this not long ago, too, that with, you know, regarding, uh, uh, you know, Chang Che's adaptations of some of the Jin Yong stuff or Louis Cha's works, you know, besides the Brave Archer, there was like Sword Stained with Royal Blood, I think. Uh, right. Legend of the Fox, House of Traps, uh, and I think you and I were kind of in agreement in that, like, you know, maybe he should have kind of left those adaptations to, you know other directors, because in fact, I think if you read, if you read Chang Chi's autobiography, he even speaks to that point where he's basically like, look, you know, I I, I don't think he mentioned Chu Yun, but he he said that, you know, I think, you know, I I, I probably should have stayed away from that stuff, or at least that's what he was implying. And that, you know, if maybe uh, Legend of the Fox and Brave Archer part three were the best attempts that he made and, you know, otherwise the stuff is, it's too convoluted. A lot of this stuff is very plot heavy. You can, you can immediately notice a difference between something like five minimums and sword stain on Royal blood. It's like, you have to be familiar with the source material.
4: Yeah. Cause he's a very stagey director. And if you're dealing with fantasy, which is very, requires a very widescreen, very cinematic style of storytelling and a lot of fantasy elements and special effects and, Chang Chang just didn't really seem all that interested in that that type of storytelling. He was more into blood and thunder and hard-boiled type of stuff that's, you know, very flesh and blood. And um, it doesn't, when he does those novels, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to work or he doesn't seem like the right director for him.
1: Right, right. And those three movies that you mentioned, we haven't uh, actually covered yet in the Venom Mob um, franchise But, you know, Patsy and I have explained or at least discussed on many occasions how, you know, Chang Chai's direction, at least in the films so far that we've covered on the show, you get to see everything. Right, Pat? I mean, do you want to elaborate on about, you know, how we can actually see things in a fight scene?
3: Yeah. One of the things that I've frequently brought up on this show is, you know, comparative to, you know, any type of martial arts film that you'll see. Uh, mainstream especially today especially the big budget you know superhero films is you know a guy throws a punch and there's three cuts (laughs) you know it's ridiculous but with the venom films you could have a full 10 minute fight scene and the only real cut you're going to see is you know maybe something being played backwards because a guy is supposedly jumping backwards 10 or 15 feet in the air. Uh, and it's just him jumping down being played in reverse, but, you know, or, you know, some sort of acrobatics that, you know, involve, uh, some sort of, uh, exaggerated leaping ability or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, you'll see, you know, 70, 80 moves in a row, whether it's with a weapon or whether it's just hand to hand, um, with some impressive acrobatics, you know, guys flipping over tables, you know, doing backflips, you know, whatever it happens to be, um, and there's no cuts it's just the camera panning left to right up or down you know following the action there's no there's no cut it's not like okay uh you start to throw a punch all right now let me show you from the other side so we can't see the stunt guy and then (laughs) let me switch back so that we don't see your stunt guy like it's ridiculous you know um but these fight scenes are so well choreographed and they're just they're so interesting like they draw you in even like even if you're not really paying attention to the film i could imagine that the fight scenes like say you know you were walking by you know and somebody was watching it and you know like oh i don't care about this but then you see a fight scene going on even when the guys are just kind of messing around or training you know like stuff that you would see towards the beginning of these films um it's like, wow, like, that's really impressive, and these guys are just screwing around, you know, just having a good time. And then, like, when you get to the real fight scenes, um, one of the things that I have noticed is these guys will go almost an entire fight and might land one or two punches until, like, the killing blow at
1: the end. Um, Right,
4: right. Yeah, I think you've you've kind of... You're nailing what I think is the rewatchable appeal of these these movies is that it it's almost like it's a long jack kirby splash page and yeah <laughs> you're, and you're getting an action in the foreground and action in the background and there's no cuts and these guys and uh, you know they it took them it would sometimes take them days sometimes a month to or two months to shoot an entire fight scene believe it or not uh really yeah i've been i believe it yeah i asked uh I interviewed Donnie Yen in 1996 with a couple of friends of mine in an interview that was never published anywhere, and I think it's been lost. But I yeah. asked him at the time; he was just kind of up and coming. Uh, I was like, "Why are the fights so good in these 70s Shaw Brothers films, uh, like a a uh, Leo Chao movie, as opposed to how they are now, where it's all quick cut and everything?" And Donnie just straight up told me, he "Goes, if." Liu Jialiang, or I think he called him Lao Garlong, he said if he needed two months to film one fight scene, Run Run Shaw would give him the studio and the time to do that, the set and everything. Wow. He would give him that time to do it. Because if you think about it, the Shaw Brothers studio, it's not like Run Run was paying himself on the studio rental. It was like, no, he's just paying the crew to make movies on these sets that he owns. So keep the cost down. So he's like, oh, if Lao Garlong needs – two months to shoot the final fight in Marshall club, I'll, I'll give it to him and, you know, and I'll, I'll, if the movies a hit, I'll give him a Ferrari as a bonus or whatever, you know, <laughs> which is, I think is what happened. And uh, the, yeah. uh, and I mean, I've, I've had other, I, I've also spoken to Lu Feng. We'll get into that later, but in Lu Feng kind of confirmed that they had all the time they needed to do the perfect, fight scenes the, the, that they had to do. Like, they were getting all the time. Whereas American films and Scott Atkins and other current stars will complain about this. They said they'll get four hours to do a fight scene or one day. <laughs> oh At best, they get two days to do a fight scene so they don't get to do the type of stuff you get to do in the Hong Kong films of the 70s and 80s. I will right, just say, right. uh, just to, just to kind of
3: cut in for a second, I fucking love Donnie Yen. So yeah. just throwing <laughs> that out there.
4: Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but awesome. uh but you'll notice like even today they can't seem to duplicate that style of action anymore because you don't have the the natural athletes or trained athletes performing in martial arts movies you know who can do this this type of fight scene it, it just doesn't exist anymore those skills don't exist sam o. hung even said in an interview that the younger generations they're not into martial arts they just want to play video games and work cubicle jobs or whatever they don't they don't care about this type of pursuit i think the right. closest it's, you'll come is like you know
3: some of the stuff with the uh, like eco uas from uh you know the raid you know, yeah
4: like, uh, yeah it and, comes at
3: night oof right and that is the, uh, night those di- for us. the night comes
4: right. for us Sorry. right right those movies uh the raid films are directed by a, a scotsman who is just a big fan of this stuff like shaw brothers films and golden harvest movies and so he goes to indonesia to make this type of film he finds those guys and they just basically if you watch them and if you're a longtime fan you're just like oh i can see where they're taking from writing wrongs and they're taking this from heart of the dragon and you know that sort of thing you can spot their influences but it is very impressive what they do they're like the only guys really doing those type of action scenes today
3: and then you get those guys you know in mainstream you see him in john
4: wick and star wars Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's their cameo right. in the uh, or their small role in John Wick uh, Three, was it? I, yep. I thought yep. that was hilarious. It's the best part of the yes. film. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's funny, you know. I got a, I got a question that just came to me that you know you mentioned Golden Harvest, and in my mind, and I want to know if I'm correct on this. So to me, Golden Harvest is to Shaw as Amicus is to Hammer. Does that sound about right? It's more like. uh
4: well, yeah, it's sort of like a 20th century Fox to Shaw Brothers, Warner Brothers, because Fox would be the studio where you had the lower budgeted productions or, um, you know, the, Golden Harvest was never on the Shaw Brothers level. It was only when the Shaws kind of decided to cut back on film production that Golden Harvest had that big rise, because in the right. 70s, Golden Harvest, they struck gold with uh, Bruce Lee. Uh, he right. dies. They are floundering until Michael Hui comes over to Golden Harvest and brings his two brothers with him and, or the brothers all come over, the Hui brothers who were very popular on television. Michael Hui had made some movies for the Shaw brothers and, uh, but they, I don't think any of them were big hits. Maybe one was, but uh, he makes Games Gamblers play and starts the wave of the Hui brothers comedies, which were every year, those are released in the seventies. They're the number one hits, like. Game Scamblers Play, I think, is the biggest hit the year it came out. Uh, Private Eyes was, like, in 77 or 76 was the biggest hit of all time. Uh, oh, 78, man. the year Five Venoms was released. Number one film is The Contract, the Holy Brothers comedy. Five Venoms isn't even a hit in Hong Kong. It's yep. actually more popular in North America, and England, and probably parts of Europe than it is in Hong Kong, where it was right. it was not really celebrated. One reason was the Venoms are mostly Taiwanese actors, and it's really tough for Taiwanese actors to be to get over in Hong Kong as stars, right? Which yeah, there, there is explains, a little bit of prejudice. There. I
5: was going to say that probably explains why, out of all those guys, Lau Man probably had more of a career after Chang Cheh because he was—I think he was like the lone guy from Hong Kong, if if I
4: remember correctly. Yeah, that, that's true. I, I think uh, yeah, because um, Lou Feng had told me. That uh, he says when they got to Shaw's and they started making, you know, what we call the Venom Mob movies, uh, that there was some tension at first because they these were guys from Taiwan working at a Hong Kong studio. So the Hong Kong crew was suspicious. Oh, no, are they bringing in cheaper Taiwanese talent to replace us? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, it was like I was like, wow, I didn't even consider that. And just right, you know, because things were okay. but you know
5: just to add on to that, I mean I, i've I've spoken any it's like anytime you speak to somebody you know who either grew up, you know, somebody either like was you know from Hong Kong or you know uh, you know uh, ethnic Chinese or grew up watching these films in Chinese and Mandarin or, or Cantonese. Um, it's like when you talk to them about the venoms, it's almost like they're like, who? <laughs> you yeah, you know, and it's it's like it's like oh Chang chi yeah, you know, I, I think they pronounce it Chang Chit, you know, when, when you you speak to somebody in, Chang in Cantonese. Yeah. So it's like yeah, like what about the Chang Che films? And you know, when they think of Chang Che, they think of uh, one armed swordsman, disciples of uh, Shaolin. You know, really mm-hmm. pretty much up to that point. And I think the the the, the popular opinion of a lot of Chinese speaking people is that Chang Che really fell off after that. And by he was almost considered to be irrelevant by the time the Venoms came around. And yeah, I think as John kind of alluded to, it's not, you know, the Venoms for the most part are really known in the Western world. And I don't think there's really any kind of popularity with them in Hong Kong.
1: Right. Well, and it's funny because, you know, when I started the show... I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to learn about Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Westerns. And I happened upon... You know, I'd heard... I'd seen Five Deadly Venoms as a kid and I knew that was a great movie and I wanted to revisit it and talk about it. And, you know, there was a lot more to the mythos of it in real life than was actually there. Like, like I always remembered it as being a very scary kind of horror movie type thing. And it wasn't. But it was still a great movie. And so... Um, we started with that, and then I i think for the second episode, I found Crippled Avengers, but I think I found it under the title of, you know, Return of the Five Deadly Ven- Venoms, so I wanted to see what that was all about, and that sort of got us on the path of the Venom Mob, and then Patsy joined us on episode three, and we decided, let's cover the Venom Mob films, because you know, this is interesting, Uh, you know, at the beginning, it was kind of hard to tell who was who, because they kept dressing everyone similarly with the same hairdo and the same outfits, and, you know, and not to be offensive to Chinese people, but it was a little hard to tell who was who at first, so I figured if we stayed with the same actors for several films, we'd get used to them, and we did, we know them all now, you know, Patsy, who do we got? We got Philip Kwok, which I have to say, he, in my mind, and 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 John and and Seven Hooks, let me know if you agree with this, but he's got to be Jared Padalecki's Asian cousin, isn't he? Yeah.
3: <laughs> I will. I will say one thing about him. Uh, I'm glad they discontinued the use of his beard, that like light stubble, and uh, yeah, it's like that's so jarring. That's like that looks awful. Like, please just. <laughs> Stay clean shaven, guys. Like this, <laughs> this is bad. Like, oh, oh, yeah, no, just no. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I did not like that. I was like, oh, that's just. It looks so unnatural on him.
1: <laughs> well, Patsy, who are the other Venoms that we've, you know, talked about?
3: Oh, uh, Lomang, uh, yeah, uh You know, it, typically we uh, we go episode by episode, um, we talk about who we think stands out the most, uh, in each film, you know, and I mean, usually it's, you know, it's usually Philip Kwok, but, um, you know, on, on occasion, you know, Chen Sun, um, you know, I do, I do like me some (laughs) Lomang. Oh yeah. That just sounds fun. I
0: mean,
3: like I, I, I love the way that these guys, because they've done so many, so many movies together, the camaraderie and like the easy back and forth. Like, I'm wondering how much of this, you know, is actually scripted and how much of it is just them, you know, knowing how much they know about each other uh, and just kind of improvising. Not just in their dialogue, but also in their fight scenes. Like, I would not be surprised if. You know, like, there's this level of intimacy that these guys have that, you know, you can only get, you know, like they say in The Matrix, uh, the second one, you do not truly know someone until you fight them, you know, and these guys spend a lot of time fighting each other. So, like, that's a level of intimacy that you can't get just from acting in a film with somebody. Like, I'm sure Mel Gibson and Danny Glover have, you know, a, a pretty good back and forth, you know, based on all the movies that they did together. But there was, you know, significant gaps in between each one of those Lethal Weapon films. Right. With these guys, you know, they're making, you know,
4: dozens of movies together. They know, were probably making <laughs> three at the same time, to be honest.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're filming all of these fight scenes. And like you're saying, you know, you can have a, a month of just doing the same fight scene over and over and over again until you perfect it. Yeah. Um. And I know that, uh, you know, we, we spoke about Donnie Yen. There's a film that he did, and I, I'm trying to remember it, because it was on, like, some list of, like, Donnie Yen's, you know, ten most badass moments, and it was him and a friend of his, and his friend was playing his adversary in the film, and they just went at it, like, this wasn't a choreographed fight. They're like, okay, let's see who's better, and who let's see who can land the first blow on each other. And, like, they actually fought um for the film you know obviously it was you know the camera was rolling and everything and they were like all right and the scene made it into the movie but like the two of them had been like talking shit to each other the whole the whole filming and they're like all right let's see what we can do i would be astonished if there was never anything like that with the venoms
5: Although i think there was a uh, an interview that toby russell did years ago with uh, philip Kwok Choi, and i i I recall, I'm paraphrasing. I'm recalling him saying that he him and Chang Shang, Shang um, knew each other so well, um, you know, in terms of like making fight scenes together that, that they had uh, over 200 move routines down pat where they just, you know, just go on 200 moves in one shot. Um, and it, it's, I think if you look at their films, like out of a Venom's mob, like the three core Venoms, Philip Fox Choi, Chang Shang, and Liu Feng, it's like, all the movies seem to end with those three fighting and i think there's there's obvious reason for that right it's like they they, they kind of know each other well just, they were trained together uh, as far as i know um and from the same school or at least i think a couple of them more um but they kind of come from the same school of the taiwanese opera and uh as opposed yes. to sunshine and you know the the taekwondo guy and the lo mang the, the the hong kong mantis guy so it's like you know, those, if, if you notice, those those two characters tend to get, you know, written off earlier in the film, and they just kind of leave it to the other three.
1: And that's just it, you know, Sun Chen is known for his kicking, but he didn't really know a lot of the acrobatics that the others knew. And, you know, Pat and I have uh, often commented on the fact that, or at least, Pat, you probably remember me saying, how many times have we watched the movie? And I'm like, oh, I love it when it ends up with, you know, Philip Kwok and uh, Chang Sheng uh, against Lu Feng at the end of the movie. and. Right. Even in revisiting Crippled Avengers, which we will get into, you know, the two of them trained together in a scene. And it was just amazing watching these two guys, as has been pointed out already, that they they knew each other from school and they knew their moves. And it was just so obvious that they were so comfortable working together.
4: Yeah, it's yeah. comparable to like Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat.
1: <laughs> these right. guys who have right.
4: wrestled endlessly and know their moves and know how to call a match. A wrestling match you know without missing a spot or one time i witnessed a a uh, live luchador event it was uh el Hio del santo versus i believe blue demon jr Blue demon yeah yeah and they <laughs> just you went out there and it's like you could tell they had probably done the match the same match 200 times because it right. was perfect <laughs> no no miss b just completely perfect crisp everything you want to see it in something a physical display like that and i think that's what you got with those uh the three taiwanese opera vets in uh in the venoms you know in the venom mob movies it's definitely why lo mang probably gets eliminated early on (laughs) (laughs) but it's always
3: you know and, and it's always you know brilliant it's you know you know you it's like a ballet. It's a, it's a choreographed dance with these guys and it doesn't matter what they're doing. Swords. Sure. Spears. Okay. Axes. Fine. Bare fists. That's cool too. It yeah, doesn't flags. matter. Yeah. Flags. <laughs> flags. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Don't get me started on the flags.
4: <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Which are similar to uh Peking opera uh, spears that they, they would use uh, when they were kids. Mm-hmm. When they would perform the uh, Peking Opera plays, or if you want to call it Taiwanese opera, I guess you can. Yeah, and it's, oh, it's, so, it's so good. It's so good.
6: Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love, a look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil, and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit.
2: Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sin-somniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? Well, we like to say they're not bad movies, just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely Real Seven Girls for a late night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again.
1: And that was one of the things we learned in the research when, when they went to opera school. It wasn't opera the way we know opera. Like, it wasn't kill the web, it kill the web. It was right. all kinds of different things. It was acrobatics and gymnastics and kung fu and, you know, all these things that they were trained in, especially Chiang Sheng and Philip Kwok.
4: Right. And uh, this kind of goes back to, uh, there was something the karate champ Joe Lewis said, and he had made a couple of flop karate films in America, and he realized the mistakes years later as he said it is better to get a gymnast or a dancer and train them in martial arts moves than to use real martial artists in a movie. And he said, the reason is, and he was probably referring to himself. He says, you turn on that camera, that movie camera, suddenly karate guys tense up. They're not really expressive. They keep it real tight, you know, and, hmm. and, and karate doesn't really look good on film the classic way. You know it's uh, it's got to be exaggerated it's got to be theatrical and he said it's just he's a gymnast and someone trained in ballet like uh this is probably why patrick swayze looks pretty sharp in roadhouse Mm. fighting like benny urquidez who trained him for the film uh because they they're expressive they show physical expression and uh they know how to do the give the right facial reactions you know facial expressions in the, in the movie when they're getting hit or when they're throwing a move, there's a bit of acting involved there and it's the theatrics. And I think that's why these, these uh, guys trained in Peking opera style tend to uh, assimilate very well to Hong Kong films and Kung Fu action cinema, like Yen Bu, Jackie Chan, Samuel Hong, those guys were Peking opera trained as well. And, right. um, and it, it's just, it's like the perfect camera ready training for, for these movies. Now, right. I will,
3: I will uh, just uh, because there is an exception to every rule, I will uh, bring up a film that I am familiar with. I don't know if uh, you guys are. It's a film by uh, Japanese director uh, Kurando Mitsutake called Karate Kill. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, I highly recommend it, mm-hmm. uh, not just because Kurando is a friend of mine. Uh, it's on Prime. The main character, uh, named Kenji, is played by... Uh, real-life karate master, Hayate Masao. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right. And during filming, uh, and I've, I've had this conversation with Karando because it's brilliantly choreographed, basically, Hayate could not get the fighting choreography down. He couldn't do it. So finally, he was just like, okay, attack me for real. Right. And I will you know, just defend myself the way I know how, because he kept getting hit and hurt every time he was trying to do the choreography because he wasn't used to it. So they're like, but what happens if we, if we hit you and hurt you? And he's like, Oh, don't worry. You won't, which sounds like, you know, (laughs) real arrogance, but Mm -hmm. he never got hit again. (laughs) (laughs) And if you see some of these fight scenes, they're brilliant but like because he's so good he's such a master of his art like he's able to make the fighting seem real without actually hurting anyone and without getting hurt himself
4: yeah yeah people um it's like everybody'll say oh bruce lee's for real he just watches movies well bruce lee looks good because bruce lee was also a champion cha-cha dancer mm-hmm. and he knew fight oh, scenes yeah. fight scenes needed that expression and they needed that kind of theatrical flamboyance that you get from dancing to look good on screen. That's why when you'll watch like a Sagal movie where the Aikido looks cool the first couple of times you see it, but it eventually gets kind of dull because this guy is not going to move in any sort of theatrical cinematic way, you know, to, to right, keep going. Right. even though, even though I'm, I'm impressed with his early films, but. What oh yeah. On above best, the law. Yeah. Yeah. Above the law is great. Uh, but you know, what happened later? Well, let's, it shall remain unspoken, but yeah, uh, <laughs> But, yeah, that's what a lot like Jackie Chan will always gripe about. Oh, they brought over this kickboxer like Bill Wallace and he didn't really get our rhythm down or whatever. And it's it's probably because you have to really coach those American or European karate guys or kickboxers. OK, this is a movie. You've got to be more expressive and you got to be more sorry, more because we're we're basically doing these things. We can't hit each other full blast in every take we're not going to make it through the film <laughs> we're going to break our ribs so they uh, they have to learn how to pull the punches short and everything and usually really good martial artists have that control anyway but it's just a totally different game
3: yeah it kind of right. reminds
4: me of uh how stallone I was always like oh i you know what we should do
3: we should like really hit each other like for real like you know that's yeah. what he said to lundgren and Lundgren hit him in the chest the first time and and put him in the goddamn hospital
4: (laughs) yeah and Lundgren did Yoshika karate so he was probably used to hitting full blast in the body yeah he punched him so hard it like threw his heart out of rhythm and almost
0: killed him (laughs) oh
3: my god (laughs) he's like yeah
1: maybe we shouldn't do that no more
4: (laughs) (laughs) hey Paulie
1: set this guy straight (laughs)
4: I, w- I would At say he deserves it for Rhinestone. This is for Rhinestone, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: w- w- what was the, over the top? Was that the arm wrestling movie? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved the over the top. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for our audience, I wanted to just mention briefly about the actual. The, we've talked about the Venom moms, the Venom mob here, but we haven't actually said who they are. And they're basically the five or six actors that were in the five. Uh, the Five Deadly Venoms or the Five Venoms movie. And they most of them, in some fashion or another, either you know all five or at least three of them acted together in about 19 films. And those are called the Venom Mob films, which the actors became known as. I think in Taiwan, they were called the Five Weapons Guys. And sometimes they're just the Five Venoms. And, you know... Uh, like you said, Patsy, their their chemistry was just so obvious whenever they acted together. And it didn't matter if, you know, Sun-Chan couldn't keep up because he could only kick. And, you know, uh, or Lo-Mang didn't show up in a movie or whatever. It was like they still all worked together uh, good. But one of the Venoms that we actually haven't really talked that much about, and it wasn't until I just revisited the five deadly Venoms that I realized we weren't talking about number 2 the snake which was played by way pai and that's because he didn't actually star in many f- pictures with the other guys um he didn't have the same kind of fighting skills as the rest of the group and you know he actually as an actor he preferred drama to action so um he pretty much only did like the five venoms he was in invincible shaolin the Ten Tigers of Tung, which we haven't covered yet. Uh, he was in The Kid with the Golden Arm. And he had a flashback sequence in The, the Brave Archer 2, which we haven't covered yet either. But uh, ultimately, he defected to Golden Harvest. But So uh, I just want to throw this on the floor there. What What do you guys think of the Venom mob themselves and, and their impact, if any, in your minds, um, on the the Kung Fu genre of the 70s and 80s?
5: I'm I'm going to be the uh, the contrarian here and say I actually didn't care for the the five venoms as the film. Um, I'm probably one of the few people that that think that's probably the weakest film in their their series. Um, and 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 aside from the first <laughs> from the opening introduction to the characters, which might be Chang Che's finest moment. Um, you know, because I I think that that introduction to all the characters and their masks and their styles, is, it it really does capture the imagination. I mean, when I was a kid, and I first saw that, I mean, I was I was hooked. But you know, having seen the oh, film yeah. over and over again through the years, you know, and you know, I I, I I totally get what you're saying about you kind of looked at this originally as almost like a horror film, and it does have this kind of hammer-esque, gothic element to it. Um, it's it's kind of boring. You know, there's not a lot of action. Uh, in fact, I, in the, around the late 90s, when I was uh, in San Francisco, probably around the time that I came across that, that DVD of Return of the Five Daily Venoms, the four star theater in San Francisco actually played a print of uh, they had a print of it. Unfortunately, it was a 60 millimeter print. Um, oh, jeez! But, uh, you know, we get there and, um, you know, everybody's excited. And then about halfway through the movie, I kind of look around, and half the audience is asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not not to shit on the movie. I mean, it's I, it's it's a it's 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 very. I, I love the look of it. I love the feel of it. I love the gothic kind of vibe it has. In fact, I'm I'm actually really partial to that. There was a very kind of specific maybe two year period in Shang chis career when he was he was doing films like Five Venoms. Um, the uh i think life gamble which i think you guys covered um yeah uh the first two brave archer films like around 77 78 um i think that was like a really cool period in his his filmography for some reason though those that particular those few films in that particular era a specific era those couple of years uh i'm very partial to um you know, I'll say one of the things I was listening to the first episode you guys did covering the five animals and um not, you know, I'm, I'm just going to just assume everybody that's listening has seen this. So I'm going to, if that's okay with you. Um, spoilers, oh yeah. Go spoilers, right ahead. Be damned. Yeah. Um,
1: I, we try, I just re-listened to the first two episodes today and yeah, you know, we tried to to cover, but I mean, this movie's what, 40 years old. Yeah. So. At
5: this point. <laughs> so you've been warned either way. So it, at some point it's revealed, you know, the, the, there, there needs to be a big reveal about the Scorpion. Like, he's the only one left. Who is this guy? And in kind of putting this film in the context of the time it was released, I'm kind of convinced that since this was Shang-Chi's sort of introduction to these group of people, that he was, you know, probably thinking, well, the audience is not really familiar with these guys yet. And if you remember, Wang Wei plays the film, and he's the judge in the film. And it, yeah. there's been a lot of talk over the years that among fans that this guy, you know, Wang Long Wei, it's probably the only film he never threw one punch in, you know? And I'm convinced that he was probably a red hair. I think the idea was that people, <laughs> the audience being familiar with this guy is like, oh, well, at some point, he's going to reveal his martial skills. And no, it turned out that it was, you know, it was uh, Sun Sheen the whole time. But... Right. Yeah, I think I, I, I got to probably... As they went on, I think they got better. I love Magnificent Ruffians, Masked Avengers. Like, I think when you compare something like Masked Avengers, which is probably one of the later, last films they all did, um, minus like Lomong Long, Long Sunshine. you know, by that point, if you compare the choreography, um, it was just a lot tighter. They had figured out their rhythms. And I think the story was better. It just, I don't know, it was just very slow and, I don't know, John. What say you?
4: I've uh, I've never been a fan of uh, the Five Deadly Venoms <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> I <laughs> saw it after seeing the bulk of their other work with Chang Che and um, I think the first one I saw was probably Kid with a Golden Arm, which is like a you know when I was a I saw it when I was maybe ten or eleven on television. I said, "Oh, this has the same sound effects as Inferman. Oh, it's from the Shaw Brothers." <laughs> <movies." laughs> and <laughs> And it was more like, oh, you know, I never considered American superhero films to be very well done. They don't, they never capture the energy or vibrant feeling you get looking at the artwork or reading the comic books like from Marvel or DC or.
1: Oh, come on. Reb Brown is Captain America. Come <laughs> on. Yeah. It was like, even the
4: Christopher <laughs> Reeve Superman movie, I'm not a fan of. It oh, just,
1: I love that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
4: everybody loves it except me. But um, <laughs> but I, I was like, well, they don't capture the thrill of reading a comic book or a Conan comic or whatever, whatever I was into at the time. And Kid with the Golden Arm was like a live action comic book. I go, this is what they should look like. You know, if they make an X-Men movie, they should have the X-Men fighting different creatures and robots or whatever across a wide screen with fights, going, you know, four or five fights going on at the same time.
1: Right, right
4: kid with a gold arm was amazing to me. And then I, I think I saw killer army, uh, which is okay. Um, I probably saw mass Avengers and then I finally saw five venoms and I was surprised how little action was in the film. And what I gathered was it was one of the first to air on television in New York. Um, that opening scene is such a, a cork, you know, it's such a hook for people to get into, especially kids. Because it looks like a comic book or something. We're introducing these five unique uh, fighters or, or whatever. And right. uh, the irony is, Lu Feng told me, none of them are in that prologue scene. None of the actual <laughs> actors. Those are all anonymous, uncredited Shaw Brothers stuntmen wearing oh, wow. Mask. So if you look at the Toad, who's supposed to be Lo Mang, <laughs> he does not have Lo Mang's physique at all.
1: So it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. So it's like uh, there's an illusion shattered about the film. But yeah, Liu Feng says they did not shoot those scenes. Like if they're wearing masks, it's not them. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> and maybe that was to keep the the uh, mystery going. And um, the choreographer of Five Venoms is uh, was Doctor Lung Ting, who's a very controversial character in the Wing Chun world. And he came up with those animal styles. They don't exist in real kung fu systems, and uh, they're they're He had sort of invented them and, you know, you have the snake and the whatever, the toad and all that. And they were just based on Lung Ting's imagination. And uh, now Lung Ting is a funny character because if you Google him, there's a huge controversy because he claims that he was Yip Man's personal student during the last years of Yip Man's life. And he has Photoshopped (laughs) pics of him in, obviously, like 1980 Lung Ting hanging out with 1969 Yip Man, you know. It's like he's not really good at the whole fraud thing. Uh, so much for the doctor uh, <laughs> ranking. But um, Lung Ting, I think, only worked on like a couple of those films, and then eventually uh, Philip Kuo—I always called him Kuo Chui—was always was the choreographer along with the other guys. They kind of just did their own thing. Um, it's the film is—I uh, don't know—it's very sluggish to me. I don't care for the pacing. Uh, it's tolerable in the English dub. Um, I saw it in Mandarin with subtitles at the Alamo draft house, and I found that very frustrating because Celestial's new subtitles for these films are so bad. They, uh, oh, yeah. the snake guy is called the snake spirit dude,
1: right? Um, yeah, sure <laughs> that's not
4: in the original script. Um, I thought the Alamo really screwed up doing the Mandarin with subtitled prints. Cause it's not how the fans in this country or England enjoy these films and probably Africa as well, because I think in various African countries, these were released English dubbed, so we know those those voices, and that's, and, you know, Ted Thomas's dubbing is actually far more accurate than what you get from these subtitles, and, right. uh, there's a lot of elements to the film, it's just, it's because I saw it probably last, or saw it later, after the other Venom films, that I never really, never really got into it the way, you know, a lot of other fans did, because I know those TV broadcasts were legendary, and um, oh, yeah. And also, you kind of want at the finale, you want them all in the mask. You want like a you want like a big Marvel Comics Toho type fight where they're all wearing the mask. <laughs> and You know, they're just ripping furniture around and stuff. And it doesn't really happen that way because that's what it seems to be building up to. And then it, it kind of keeps the whole Judge D mystery going. And it's uh, and I, I agree with Seven Hooks that this was uh, Wang Lan Wei was there as a red herring
1: interesting interesting well since we're talking about the movie um, mm. let's get it out of the way here because uh, so Patsy I'm dying to know what your opinion of the five deadly venoms was
3: well you know I kind of agree with these guys you know it's uh very light on the action although the fight scenes that they did have uh, I enjoyed the uh, you know I watched it in English with subtitles just so I could get the uh, the difference you know and you know there's You know, subtle variants, you know, obviously the snake spirit dude was definitely one that caught me off guard. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) gecko to lizard. It's like, okay, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, like little things, but like, if I had only watched with the subtitles or I'd only watched with the English dub, I would have seen a very different movie. You know, the, the conversations that were being had, um, the translations were very different, you know, usually it's, it's close, you know, maybe, you know, there's an idiomatic expression that, you know, doesn't have, you know, uh, an English to Chinese or Chinese to English, uh, exact, uh, translation. And, you know, you, you'll get that. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's like, oh, uh, oh, people like that are 12 for 10 cents. It's like, oh, they must mean a dime a dozen, you know, like, but there wasn't anything like that. There was like significant differences. Um, So I found that to be interesting. Yeah. Also the biggest thing for me that I found lacking in this movie compared to some of the other venom films. And one of the things that I always talk about that I enjoy so much is the lightheartedness or not quite comedic uh, interactions between some of the characters but just, like, the lightheartedness, you know, like, guys enjoying themselves, having fun, you know, like, characters that are, you know, like, oh, I'm just, you know, a happy-go-lucky dude that could kill you with, you know, both <laughs> both arms tied behind my back because I'm just a nasty <laughs> martial artist. But, you know, having, you know, like, uh, like John was saying with the masks, uh, totally different characters... It's like, that's totally different actors behind the mask. So it's like, oh, you don't know who this is. It's like, yeah, because you cheated. Like, <laughs> like, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder who's, you know, behind this Batman mask. And, you know, you know that Ben Affleck is playing the he's playing Batman. But then you take the mask off and it's Matt Damon. And it's like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> like, it's like, no, that's that. No, that's screwed up. Like, that's. that's some bullshit right there um but no like there's there's uh there's none of that like fun for lack of a better term like there's no fun in this movie everybody is very serious very you know uh driven and even the guys that are supposed to be the good guy like Philip Kwok, like, hey, this guy was a witness to the murder. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll torture him to get information. It's like, he willingly came to you. He came to you and was trying to tell you what was going on. And you're like, tell me what you know. And you start pouring tea down his throat. (laughs) (laughs) He volunteered. He's like, hey, I want you to know this. Oh, yeah? We'll get you to talk. What? Yeah, no shit. I said I would. (laughs) What are you doing to me?
1: But then they made him change his story because he was pointing out Lu Fang, and then he was like, "Oh no, no, it was actually Lu Meng because he didn't." No, it wasn't beard. the
3: guy with the beard. It was the guy without the beard. My mistake. Right? <laughs> I've never seen a guy with a beard before. Like that was one of the translations. It's like, wait a minute, you're looking at like four guys with beards, right? <laughs> like
0: that. Uh, guy-
4: very unreliable testimony the cult following is is all about timing i really think that's what it is it just was broadcast on tv at just the right time and where a lot of kids saw it and got into it and saw like with a lot of horror films you will talk to people who think texas chainsaw massacre is loaded with gore and scenes of a chainsaw hitting a body and guts falling out right like a horror film i think a child's imagination made that movie more than it was in their head when they were trying to remember it because we didn't we didn't all have vcrs back then so it wasn't like you could tape the movies and rewatch them it's like they they saw more than they really did
1: you know uh, yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have to be the odd man out here because i had that experience and i remembered you know vaguely about the film and like i said before i remembered that it was scarier much scarier than obviously it was and, um, you know, I, I, I re-listened to uh, my first episode of The East Meets the West, and which Spencey Domepiece and I dis- dissected the film, and I watched it again um, yesterday, and I have to say I enjoyed it, and I was almost going to go so far as to say, well, I can see why this is considered the best of the Venom films, <laughs> <laughs> but after hearing your arguments, I understand where you guys are coming from, but... But yeah. All right. So and I did time it. It wasn't until 40 minutes that the action actually started in the film. And I, I got that and I was kind of going to, well, where, where's the action here? Um, I didn't I, I didn't necessarily feel they needed to wear their masks. I wasn't thinking that when it came to the end fight, because at that point you knew who everybody was. So it didn't really matter if they had their masks on or not. Um, But I just enjoyed I enjoyed the intrigue. I enjoyed actually for me, the enjoyment was after having watched all these Venom films and then, like, finally knowing who all they are and being able to recognize them and then going back and rewatching this first film um where I could go, oh, yeah, it's Philip Kwok and it's Liu Feng and it's Lo Meng and, you know, all those guys. I-, I had a bit of a more enjoyment of it even than before when I watched it, which I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, at least for the show. So I'm going to be the odd man out and say that I actually liked this film. I enjoyed the colors. I enjoyed... Chang Che's use of shadows in this movie, which he doesn't do a whole heck of a lot in the later films, especially like in the jail scenes. There's a lot of, you know, light coming through the bars and you can, you know, you get the shadows of the, the crisscross of the bars on people's faces. You don't get that in later films.
4: Well, I, I'm going to uh, burst uh, quite a few bubbles with, with this <laughs> statement. But um, it's probably because uh, Chang Che there's been a lot of dispute over how much he really directed of the five Venoms. Cause Robert Tai has claimed he's the real director. And he was oh, the co choreographer and second unit guy in the film. And I asked Lu Fing, uh, at a, at a, I'll, I'll just give you the, the real scenario. We were at a Burbank uh, Galleria mall and, uh, he bought me a Coke zero and we sat down huh. and I asked him, my first question, because I had my, my friend who speaks Mandarin translate for me, anything that to be translated, and I asked him straight up, I said, so, um, is it true that Chang Chai slept on the set while you guys really directed the films? And Liu <laughs> Feng pulls back with this big expression, <laughs> like, real wide eye. Yeah, and much. then he just, like, you know, pulls his, body, his upper body back. And then he he just pulls in close to me and goes, "All the time, Wow. And then he started chattering in Mandarin to my friend uh, Seaton. And he's just like, and he explained the whole story. he said that Chang Che would be sleeping, you know, over by his air conditioners because he would have air conditioners brought into the stage set, so he would he would take his nap <laughs> by and, and there he'd go lay on some boxes and just go to sleep. He said, "But sometimes he would have like one eye open to see if he could catch them goofing off." <laughs> so it's so they it, it's uh you know, director is a very questionable label in, in Hong Kong cinema, you know, because that's just how those movies were made. But it would basically he would tell them the setups, he'd go, These are the type of scenes I want. I want you to do this and I want you to do that, and I want you to do this scene, and work on that, and then he would just go take a nap. And um, you know, how much is really directed by Quo Robert Tai uh, even Lu Feng I think Lu Feng said that he and uh, you know quote Julie would would direct these scenes would direct a lot of the stuff and everything it's very open to debate but uh, Lu Feng did confirm with me that Cheng chi slept on the set a lot and maybe that's uh, was that why the, you get an inconsistent visual style with this film as compared to some of the others
1: was that did he just sleep through this film particularly or I think it was all films? of
4: them because there's an interview with the actor. <laughs> Richard Harrison, who worked with Chang Chai on, uh, I think, Boxer Rebellion and Marco Polo.
0: He had said
4: that, um, you know, he was told to arrive at the at the studio 8 a.m. He arrives there. Nobody's there. Three hours (laughs) later, Chang Chai and the crew come rolling in. And that's just how things were done in Hong Kong. And he said, I think he said Chang Chai did sleep on the set quite a bit. He would just go, go to a corner and nap and the second unit guys would take over and, you know, in some cases, like in 1971 or so, that would be John Wu or Pal Shay Lee or uh, some of these other directors. Wu Ma, I think, did a lot of co directing for him. And, uh, but it, there's been other stories. But Lu Fig, I could tell, no one had ever asked him that question before.
1: Oh, so he's probably
4: for years had to hear, oh, Chang Che, this genius and everything. And I do think Chang Che was a genius. And I think he is responsible for the style of those films. And because he's the, what, I don't know what the, what you would call it, uh, the scenario creator or whatever. But, um, you know, he didn't, he's not by our Hollywood definition. He's not really the director of five Venoms. It's like the overseer. Yeah. Yeah. He's an overseer. That's, that's a good way to put it. Like a, the chief of second units or whatever, you know, it's <laughs> like, so I still consider him the director cause his style is distinctive and his storytelling is very distinctive throughout his entire career. And he remade his films quite a bit, which we can get it to some yeah. other time. But, yeah. um, and this is certainly a project, I think he came up with the story with Ni Kuang and Ni Kuang kind of wrote the mystery out or whatever. But, uh, but Chang Che is very, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting him down. I still consider him, you know, top level of, uh, the, in the history of Hong Kong cinema, but that's how these things were made. And that's why you get that inconsistency there.
3: I do want to point uh,
4: one other thing out.
3: Uh, actually, two, two things that I noticed that kind of uh, reminded me of other things. Uh, one, they didn't notice or, like, have any inklings that that dude was, like, the snake guy, despite the fact that he had snakes on both his wrists. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind
4: of giving like, it away there.
3: You know, at least, you know, it's it's like that, that, that meme that's going around. It's like, oh, we have to find the bad guy's hideout, and it's like this huge black building with, like, spires <laughs> and lightning strikes and, like, everywhere else is sunny. <laughs> like, oh, if only we knew who the bad guy was. And then, um, having, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chang be the, uh, the, um, I keep wanting to call him the grasshopper. He was the scorpion. Uh, having him be the scorpion. Oh, Sun and, Chan. Yeah. And having him at the end, uh, uh, you know, just kind of standing there reminded me of the, uh, the Simpsons episode, the pretzel wagon one where the, the mafia was <laughs> fighting the Yakuza and... Marge is like, "All right, let's just go outside and let them do their thing." And or no, go back inside, and let them do their thing. And Homer's like, "Yeah, but that guy hasn't done anything yet. You know he's going to do something and it's going to be great." And as soon as he comes inside, you hear like all these like, you know, martial arts, you know, uh cliché sounds. And Homer's yeah. just like, "Uh and that's exactly what happens here. It's almost like they use that. It's like, "You know he's going to do something awesome." And it's like, "Aha, I'll flip my what looks like a championship belt open and just start whipping like blades at people. I will say though the uh, getting uh, getting the toad with the thing. I thought he had thrown the spear or whatever through his head. Oh, by the way that the effect looked because it's like how did you get to, on two
1: different sides? So-
4: at the same time?
1: Right, right. Like, wait a
4: minute. <laughs> it was probably something done by two different units, like Robert Tai might have been directing one scene, and, uh, you know, Lung Ting or even um, Philip Kuo may have been directing another scene, and the, the editor had to piece that together, and I'm sure that was a nightmare <laughs> for the editor. Yeah, so it's just like,
3: time. how did he get two things in each side of his head at the same time from two different angles from one right. guy. <laughs> Unless they're like like he curved them somehow, but we never saw him do that in the film. Like everything yeah. was just straight ahead. So like, yeah, well, oh, then you're then, running
4: away. I'll show you. <laughs> Chang Che's pre-nap orders were probably misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't feel like going back and reshooting it, so. I will say this
3: does have uh, if you've listened to the show, you know that, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, my favorite uh, <laughs> cliches of all oh, yeah. of the Venom films. Oh, no, I've suffered this catastrophic injury. That should kill me. That's all right. I can keep fighting for another 15 minutes until it's time for me to die.
1: My he intestines has important... are
3: hanging out, but that's all right. I'll use them to strangle you.
1: But he has important plot information. So.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And that was funny, too, because, you know, you know, Lo Meng is, like, nigh invulnerable, like the tick, until he gets stabbed in the ears, and then forget it, he's over, Uh-oh, he's my done.
4: my enchanted earlobe, How did you know? Right. It's, like, it's the one part of him that didn't get the Kung Fu iron body conditioning, you know? Right, right. Iron vest, I think they call it. Yeah, and
3: that's the thing, they had the, the Iron Maiden. <laughs> the iron like, Maiden,
1: excellent! But yes. they had the
3: Iron Maiden, but in the subtitles, it was called The Coat of a Thousand needles or something yes yeah <laughs> it's an iron maiden like oh, yeah. in the in the dub they call it an iron maiden yeah
1: like right. right and
3: that's the thing like that's what i'm talking about like with some of this stuff it's like oh you're number one you're number two but he referred to him the master referred to them as the eldest that's what it said in the uh in the um subtitles yeah yeah so i'm like okay that's you know that's fun but it's like and I, I got confused again like i know you guys keep talking about the beginning of how good it was it's like oh yeah yeah i had the first guy and the second guy but they never met then i had the fifth guy and the third guy and they never met but you're the fourth one yeah and you never <laughs> met anybody it's
4: like
1: wait what <laughs>
4: my my that, favorite my favorite line is if you, when you find the money give it to a charity like don't enrich yourself for <laughs> dealing with all this violent shit just go the, just give it to a charity the only
3: line that matched up with, uh, the dub and the sub was, I'm right here in the final confrontation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, that matched. <laughs> but everything else was just so off. Do any of you remember what
5: what the what the password when they said like in the dub it was Poison Clan rocks the world? Do any of you remember what the
4: subtitle? Oh was? And that's was like iconic. Of... That should have been I in forgot. the subtitles.
5: No, I, I missed forgot. it. What was it? All right, well, when I'm done with this, I'm going to have to change all
3: my passports. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. That's incredible. That's the same combination of my luggage.
1: <laughs> you know, and it's funny, because, Pat, you and I have talked about um, the subtitles in previous episodes, and um, uh, generally my, my policy in the last couple of years in, in watching anything has just been to put the closed caption on, because sometimes you catch things in the background that you wouldn't ordinarily catch, or character names and stuff. And I have to say... In the Five Deadly Venoms, I actually shut the subtitles off halfway through because they weren't matching what the dubs were saying, and it was driving me crazy. And I'm like, I gotta watch this for the show. I I can't. I gotta focus. I <laughs> shut them oh, off. I
3: I I had to do both of them. Like <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I. At one point, I was watching uh, this and um, the Lee Van Cleef movie at the same time. But then I was like, oh, geez. all right. Because these subtitles are so screwed, I have to watch these one at a time.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise... That's funny. So since we've covered Five Deadly Venoms, let's talk about Crippled Avengers now. And then we'll we'll take a break and get into spaghetti westerns. Um. So, you know, and as I said in in the episode in which we covered this film, Crippled Avengers is not the Hulk with no arms or Professor X and Daredevil in the Avengers. Well, well, maybe Daredevil, because Philip Kwok was blind in this, but... Um, you've got, the, uh, the story is a wealthy kung fu expert who's turned bitter by evil, I'm sorry, who's turned bitter and evil by the slaying of his wife and the loss of his son's hands. He sort of bullies this town through terror and force, and, um, they find pleasure and satisfaction in literally crippling people who just basically get in their way. And so four of those guys that get crippled, one is a hawker who gets blinded, one's a blacksmith who's made mutant deaf, one's a drifter who loses his legs, and, One's a fighter who basically loses his sanity. They all, the four of them band together and use their disabilities to the best of their advantage. And they're tested time and time again and demonstrate their strengths and abilities. And um, so I'd like to talk about this movie. Uh, uh, John, what did you think of this film?
4: Uh, and when I love did you it. first see it? I, I, I love it. I first saw it at Black Belt Theater probably in 86 or so. Um, it's you know, it's the live-action comic book. It's filled with action. It has uh, some of the scenes are, uh, like, with uh, Philip Kwok is the the blind fighter are lifted from Zadoichi movies, but that's a great influence to have uh, Right. because Zadoichi movies later influenced uh, the Daredevil comics in the 80s, I think when Frank Miller took over the writing. Uh, right. the uh, it, It's just, like, I love the Liu Feng as the villain with the – the metal hands and <laughs> shooting the darts. It was, I mean, when you're a kid and you've sat through the most disappointing superhero adaptations possible, uh, cause you don't have access to like old serials or cliffhangers or whatever. Uh, it's just seeing that as like, okay, this is what I wish I could see. in like, uh, an X-Men movie or an Iron Man movie or Spider-Man movie or whatever the right. hell, you know, it's just like, this was like amazing stuff. And, um, Just, like, the acrobatics at the end, from what I understand, like, um, my friend Garrow, he had screened this film a couple of times, I believe, at the Coolidge Corner, and he said that last fight had people on their feet applauding. Like, like the crowd went crazy for it, because the acrobatics are so perfectly performed, and the whole action is staged so well, it's just, like, it's a joy to watch. And I think this is probably, it's sort of neck and neck with Kid with a Golden Arm is my favorite Venoms film.
1: Nice. Nice. Seven Hooks, your opinion on The Crippled Avengers.
4: Loved
5: it. I uh, I was going through some of my old seven screens recently, and I, I used to, that, that was the uh, Shaw Brothers in-house magazine that they used to put out once a month. And the issue I was looking at was covering Crippled Avengers, but at the time it hadn't been released, and the working title in English was Handicapped Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I loved it. I, I it's, it it was another one that I actually saw at the, at the same theater in San Francisco, uh, uh, the Four Star, uh, back in the late '90s. But there was actually a 35 millimeter print, and I believe it was probably. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was the same exact print that was probably used by Crash Cinema, because uh, I know that was floating around for a while in different theaters for different screenings. But because uh, it, it had that same scene. Um, you know, with the guys like, you know, uh, the, they're trying to disclose the fact that uh, Sunshine actually has real iron feet on the guy, yeah. And uh, I think that that scene was uh, in this this particular print was kind of screwy or there was some frames missing, but uh, it's like, yeah, that looks a little familiar. I loved it. Um, In comparison to being in the same theater watching Five Venoms uh, and Crippled Avengers, uh, the audience for this one, on the other hand, loved it. Um, I really loved, in particular, the scene where uh, uh, Philip Kwok Choi is, uh, you know, he's already blinded and he's just taken in, you know, they go to the teacher to to train them, uh, you know, martial arts styles, uh, you know, according to whatever their particular handicap is. And the very first thing he does is throw, uh, the teacher throws some leaves in the air. And his very first attempt, he just, like, manages without being able to say a goddamn thing, just throws these darts behind him and, like, catches all three leaves (laughs) perfectly. So, yeah, he's got a career ahead of him. Um, And then just one other scene of note that I love was the, uh, and it was shot very well, I thought, or very effectively, was the uh, where Mang loses his herring and, like, there's pretty much a sustained silence for about two minutes on screen. Yeah. Yeah. That, but, uh, yeah,
1: loved it. That was great. Patsy, what about you?
3: I mean I'm gonna have to echo what these guys say. Um
1: <clears throat>
3: but I mean if this is the if you're looking for a superhero film, like this is it. Like it's it really is, you know, like how you would want like Marvel to 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 really take over and do, um, you know, fight scenes and handle superheroes, you know, or DC or whatever. I mean, the closest that um, I can correlate these two, like, if you want to talk about, you know, actual, like, cause the movies, forget about it. The movie fight scenes are absolute atrocities. If guys aren't shooting lasers at each other, Uh, (laughs) it's 900 cuts for a 30 second fight. Like uh, you lose me, but, if you want to talk to me about the hallway fight scene in daredevil, like oh, the TV yeah. show or yeah. the, the prison hallway fight scene in the Punisher.
1: Right. Oh yeah.
3: Or the, uh, the, the four-way fight with the defenders where all four of them are going down the hallway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like those few, like that's, that's done right. And like, this really gave me a sense of like those types of fights where it's, you know, these, these awesome characters and, um, you know, kind of tailoring the cinematic style to, um, to the, the, the various disabilities of the characters, you know, like the silence, you know, for the, for the deaf character, like that's, it's almost like the story is being told from their point of view because like that, ah, I just, I love the way that worked. Um, I will say though the the thing with the the metal legs, all I could think of was the Stephen Wright joke. It's like I once knew a man with wooden legs but real feet. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's uh, hilarious.
3: But yeah, it's it, it's so well done. Um, like you know, it it obviously has you know some of the the you know the, the cliche stuff that you know you're gonna find in every one of these movies. But I really. I really can't recommend this one enough. Like this this might be my favorite so far.
1: Nice. Nice. I'm glad you got a chance to finally see it because we've been sort of dancing around it cuz I had already covered that on episode 2, but Oh, I'm
3: going to I'm going to rewatch it cuz I had to I had to watch it at like double speed, but you know, I'm,
1: right.
3: <laughs> I, so I'm going to rewatch it, you know, to catch all the the subtleties and nuance. Yeah. But yeah, like the uh just, I really liked the, the characters. I liked the, the depth of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the storytelling, you know, and it, it, again, it's, you know, typical, uh, Shaw brothers film where someone's wrong. And it's like, I'll avenge you. Oh no, now, now no, I'm an idiot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> although that kind of made me think of the, I think it was casino when, uh, Pesci was crushing the guy's head in the vice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it, I definitely thought it was, uh, you know, I complain a lot about the, the lightheartedness, you know, as, as I said, for, you know, the first film, this kind of took it a little too far, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm doing all these Kung Fu moves, but <laughs> I'm laughing like, you know, I got my head crushed in a vice and I can't understand the gravity of the situation. Oh, wait, that is what happened.
1: Yeah, well, and he had gone crazy because they squashed his head. You know,
3: See, I, I didn't, I didn't get he went crazy. I got his cognitive abilities were severely impaired, and now he was like partially not like lobotomized, but like he definitely had some brain damage.
1: Yeah, he was like childlike, not crazy. I guess the wrong word. Yeah, but. like
3: that's you know that was my interpretation. Was he was just I don't want to say dumb. But, like, he was...
1: Well, he was the idiot.
3: He was greatly impaired. <laughs> the idiot. He was greatly imp- Like, idiot in the sense of, like, that's what... That's the term they used for, you know, people who were, you know, impaired right. at, that, at that time. You know? Yeah. Like, not a duh-duh idiot or a panicky
1: idiot. <laughs> yeah. Or as the British used to say, spastic. That's right. <laughs> Twitch of the year. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I you know, I really enjoy this, especially watching this this time around. And um, I have to say, even though I had seen it before, every time a good guy got crippled by a bad guy, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. You know, he poked his eyes out, even though he still had eyeballs, but he just couldn't see, um, you know, cut his legs off. And it was just like, oh, man, it like, like it had me through the whole film. And actually, this was the one that endeared me to Chiang Sheng because. Uh, because of what happened to him, because he became the the idiot or just like childlike in his mentality, his acting changed. Like he was very serious; he was going to avenge them, in the first third of the film. And then they crushed his head, and then he was like nutty cuckoo. But he was still awesome. He still had all his fighting skill, and I I just I loved that about him, and that sort of endeared me to him as an actor. And in these films, I, I, I he's become my favorite. I think mostly due to this film here. But, yeah, I agree with you guys, too, in terms of it, you know, this is how a superhero film should be done. You know, even the villain, Lu uh, uh, Lu Feng, his arms not only can shoot stuff, but he can extend them out and chop trees down with them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only way that this could
3: have been made better is if, like, each one of these guys, like, their thing, you know, like, they could have, like, combined into, like, you know, crippled Avenger Voltron. Like, that would have been the best. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crippled time. You know, <laughs> you know, obviously, you have, you know, go-go gadget, you know, arms for, you know, the bad guy. Right. You know, well, so you're not that far off.
4: I, I can <laughs> add to that. You've actually made a good point because I believe the uh, Go Nagai robot cartoons were very big on Hong Kong TV at the time. I would not be surprised... If something um, like uh, Get a Robo-G or yep. uh, Grandizer inspired the uh, idea of these metal hands that shoot darts yeah. and blades, I yeah. wouldn't be shocked at all because it looks just like them. So
1: it got an influence. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's funny, one element of this film that I really liked was, and it was a very subtle character thing they did between Lo Mang and Philip Kwok, because Philip Kwok was blind and Lo Mang couldn't hear or speak. So they would communicate to each other by sort of writing the Chinese characters on each other's hands, and then they would have to hold on to each other uh, throughout certain combat scenes. Which was great because, you know, Philip Kwok, even though he was amazing and could fight as if he could see, he still needed to be grounded in reality. And I I just loved that dynamic between the two, that it was like these sort of brothers joining forces, helping each other out in a way that, you know, seeing and hearing people didn't need to do, you know. Mm -hmm.
4: It it gives the film a little bit of heart that it otherwise might not have had and uh, admittedly not. Not as common as you'd think among a lot of Kung Fu films is like it gives it a, a sense of humanity that and pathos that you're just not going to get anywhere,
1: anywhere else in, in these type of films. Exactly. Exactly. So before we take our break, is there anything else you guys want to say about Shaw Brothers films and uh, uh, what we've talked about so far, the Venom Mob and all those guys? That's about
4: it. I, I have one thing weird to add that I just stumbled upon on IMDb. I found the listing for Crippled Avengers. According to the trivia, this was an influence on a Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a big Star Trek viewer, so I did not know this. Uh, apparently, it's called Blood Oath. Oh yeah. Yeah, and apparently they believe that they basically lifted the plot from this film for, <laughs> for, for that episode. So I guess I'm going to have to go to Netflix and, and hunt this one down and take a look That's at it. I've funny. never seen Deep Space Nine in my life, so that, yeah, that'll be I'm amusing. Same. I'm not familiar with it at all.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah.
5: By the way, I, I, during your first uh, take on, uh, I think it was the first episode where you covered Five bounds, you had mentioned... Uh, music that was lifted from um i think the monty python, monty python. And the holy grail yep. yeah. just just to kind of note to people if you're into any of the shaw uh film music which you know has been used over and over again not just shaw films but the monty python stuff a lot of this is uh from the Wolfe uh, studios in britain they were like kind of like a library uh stock music company that would license their music out to the Shaw Brothers, et cetera. And so that's why you hear a lot of the same music over and over again in some of these films. Wolf probably about 10 years ago, put out a CD compilation called Wolf Presents Kung Fu Super Sounds, And um, I believe, in fact, I think the theme from uh, the, the main titles of the five Venoms is on a Wolf album. You can get it on vinyl for a pretty penny on eBay. I think it's called the uh, a rose for dracula. Huh. And uh yeah, you can still get it on Amazon, the uh the wolfcom.
1: Interesting.
5: That's it. Interesting.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So, we're going to take a break here and when we come back we're going to address spaghetti westerns and uh we'll go from there. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for joining us on part one of our The East Meets the West Primer. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And um, if you're new to the show, we hope that you were able to kind of catch up on what's been going on. And if you're an existing listener, we hope that it was a good refresher for you and maybe you uh, picked up a few facts that you hadn't uh, previously known. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on part two. The East
0: Meets the West is intended for purposes only all clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders all other material is copyright jupiter media